Hello, all, and welcome to the 18th episode of the Ocean Decade Show, a podcast dedicated to guiding you down the yellow brick road of this global initiative to transform the ocean, housed within the American Shoreline Podcast Network family. My name is Taylor Gells, and I'm your host and tour guide on our adventure through the Ocean Decade. So we have not only a new topic, but a new way that we're doing things for this podcast. I keep trying to innovate so that I don't get bored, but that's the good thing about the Ocean Decade is it's not boring and there's so many different levels and layers that it it stays interesting. So we're covering a book. Yeah, so the Ocean Decade podcast is uh, doing a book review and interview for the first time. So written by social media phenomenon and award-winning marine biologist, Dr. David Schiffman. Uh, The book is called Why Sharks Matter, a deep dive with the world's most misunderstood predator. So like I said, I love that I'm still playing with all these uh, different ways of bringing you interesting ocean-related information and beyond. So as you could guess from the title of the book, this book is all about sharks. And sharks are some of the most fascinating, most ecologically important, most threatened, and most misunderstood animals on Earth. It's also the animal that if you asked probably any four-year-old <laughs> anything about the ocean, what their favorite animal was in the ocean, shark would probably be in the top two or three, I would assume. Often more feared than revered, uh, their role as predators of the deep has earned them a reputation as a major threat. But uh, as David goes into in his book, they're really in danger from us, uh, from us as humans. We are <laughs> top dog predators of uh, these fascinating creatures. So the summary of the book, which I always love summaries of books, especially of authors, because I have found this for myself too. They seem so flattering that I assume that they write them themselves. <laughs> um, yeah. So, and, but it's all true, which is fabulous with David. You know, some of them you're like, yeah, I don't know how great you are with David. He is as great as his flattering bio seems. So in this book, he shows everyone how and why we should protect these mysterious misunderstood guardians of the ocean. And especially it's really important for us as a society, you know, in the U S and globally to overcome our misconceptions and rise above the cinematic jump scares, uh, which we'll get to, I think in our questions a little bit later, uh, to embrace sharks as the quote, imperiled and elegant ocean guardians. They really are. So sharing his own fascinating experiences, working with sharks, uh, in the book, David tells us why healthy shark populations are a must for supporting ocean ecosystems and why coastal economies are really dependent on them. Uh, why we're in danger of losing many shark species forever, Uh, why scientists, conservationists, readers, what we can do to help save these iconic predators, and my probably my favorite bit, why so much of what you've heard about sharks is wrong (laughs) and how to save them is wrong. Um, It's a great place to start because you go into the book, I think everyone came into the book, I came into the book with, you have these conceptions about sharks, even it's me who has, you know, degrees in marine science and have studied... uh, ocean ecosystems. Um, And so it was really helpful, this fantastic book, uh, especially the section at the very beginning, the shark basics, (laughs) helped me, who I call myself the worst fisheries grad student in the history of fisheries grad students. I got to learn uh, some things as well. Uh, And in addition to, you know, this book, David is a social media phenomenon, has over 65,000 followers on Twitter, which is where I interact with him the most and has given presentations on his work in every single U.S. state and at over 80 scientific conferences worldwide. Um, I've known of David for years and then had the pleasure of being Twitter friends and were uh, academically connected. I love these Kevin Bacon level connections to people in the academic world. Um through the fantastic Southern Fried Science power couple, because that's how I always refer to them as, <laughs> Dr. Andrew Thaler and Dr. Amy Freitag, who went to grad school with David, and I worked with Amy during my time in graduate school. So, <laughs> David, I'm so glad that we're finally getting to connect semi-in-person, and uh, thank you for, for coming on the show this month. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so first off, I gave you a pretty long introduction, but <laughs> if there's ways that you want to introduce yourself and then your path to... The Ocean Decade, recognizing that it's a bit different than others that I've featured on this show. I love, you know, bringing in people who your everyday work isn't focused on the Ocean Decade, but it's so relevant. And so I love to hear that kind of connection from you. Absolutely. So I was invited to speak last year at the Early Career Ocean Professionals Day as part of the, the launch events for the UN Decade of the Ocean. And that was really cool. I've uh, just asked to give sort of opening remarks on the state of shark science and conservation and what more needs to be done as well as what's being done incorrectly now. So that was a lot of fun. But I, yeah, I'm a marine conservation biologist based in the Washington, D.C. area. 
And uh, I've just always loved sharks as long as my family can remember and love studying sharks and shark conservation and public perception of sharks and writing about this stuff. Yeah, that's so you were you're that group of like four year olds that, you know, in the top two, three things is sharks. And then you just never outgrew it. (laughs) Yeah, that was me when I was four, 100 percent. There are pictures of me when I was that age with shark toys and shark T-shirts. I also went through a brief dinosaur thing, but grew out of that one. As we all do, you know, I feel like I remember, and this is a weird tangent, but it's it's a fun story, that I remember in first grade, in my first grade class, we had to select different dinosaurs to do a project on, which is hilarious to think about a first grader doing a project in general. And I was the only one in my whole class to pick the Triceratops. And then they grouped us by who picked the same dinosaur. And so then I had my desk all by myself, just like sitting in the middle of a room. They, They didn't have a like other dinosaurs table or anything? I think I was the only one to not do like, I don't know, one of the other ones, but yeah. And so I've had a passion for Triceratops, although I've learned recently that they don't think they were a real dinosaur themselves. They were like a younger form of a different dinosaur, which kind of crushed my dreams. Paleontology, man. I tell you what. Oh, just crushing my dreams. But um, (laughs) yeah, so you've transitioned that, you know, childhood love of sharks into uh, a few graduate degrees and a fantastic career really spanning the different realms of what being a marine conservationist I think means because you have the academic work and then you have the really public facing work yes you know and social media has been such a huge part of your uh your way of doing things and so do you happen to remember what your very first tweet was I do remember what my very first tweet was that was almost 300,000 tweets ago I joined Twitter in 2009 300,000? Wow. My, so that's, incidentally, a book is about 80,000 words. Uh, so I've written several books on Twitter, <laughs> just in Twitter, random Twitter nonsense. I would read a book of just, like, your Twitter, like, responses to, <laughs> to trolls. <laughs> we, we have fun. My very first tweet was to Andrew Thaler, who you mentioned earlier. We were actually roommates in undergraduate. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I knew, him even, I knew him even longer than that. Uh, but my very first tweet was, I set up my Twitter, hey, Andrew, am I doing this right? And I, 12 years later, having taught 600 scientists and marine, envir- or marine environmental advocates and government officials all over the world how to use Twitter, still don't know if I'm doing it right, but it's working out well for me. It is working out pretty well. That's so funny that how much it's grown from there. And yeah, I think, I think you're doing it pretty right, especially with the you know people you've been able to reach and uh, the way that you use not just Twitter, but all your kind of social media platforms. Why is that so important to you? Yeah. Well, in ocean conservation biology and my broader field, I was not the first one to recognize the importance of this public-facing outreach. We have long been sort of ahead of the scientific curve in the importance of getting out of the ivory tower and talking to people. Because if you want a law to change, if you want stakeholders to change their behavior, they're not going to read a paper in some obscure journal that they've never heard of. So talking to people has always been recognized as important in my broader field. But I was one of the first to embrace this on social media, to recognize the potential of this tool as the global public square, as a megaphone, as a way to amplify the voice of experts. And certainly there's plenty of nonsense on social media, some of it harmful, some of it just frustrating. But this is the most powerful tool ever created for experts to share their expertise with a large-scale public. And when done correctly, when done strategically, it can be just an incredibly useful tool in your toolbox. Yeah, that's a great way to think about it, especially with all the, especially Twitter news recently with uh, Elon Musk. It's nice to remember, you know, what it can be and what it should be. But you've been, so this is definitely not your first interview. (laughs) You've been interviewed countless times. Um, It is not. It's not my first interview today, Taylor. <laughs> With my book coming out, I don't know when this is going to air, but my book coming out, my book comes out in a few days as of when we're recording it. So it has been a busy weekend. By the time this comes out, this will be uh, our flagship June episode. So coming out the first Friday of June. Um, so it's been out for a few days at that point. So it's been out and it's a resounding success, I've heard. So <laughs> thanks, future Taylor. <laughs> so in the book, uh, you mentioned, and this happens, you know, in all of your interviews, some of the most common questions you get asked, you know, like your favorite shark and if you've ever been bitten by a shark, what's the weirdest, like most out of the box question you've been asked? 
Oh man! In addition to the interviews, which th- those tend to be pretty formulaic, uh, I guess there's just like a way to interview a new author. Uh, but every once in a while, we do get fun, fun out of left field questions. But I also do these "Ask Me Anything" sessions on social media every week, and I've answered thousands of people's questions over the last 13, 14 years. And there are some weird ones. So as you mentioned, lots of people know things about sharks, but a lot of what they know is wrong. And some of what they know that's wrong is cuckoo bananas, bana- uh, bizarre wrong. So there are, sometimes I get asked, so why do sharks do a thing that sharks absolutely unequivocally do not do? Uh, there are some, in the book, I address a lot of what you called common misconceptions, uh, things that are wrong, but that lots of people believe. But Every once in a while, I get something that I have never heard before as someone who studies public misunderstanding of these issues. And whew, there are some there are some doozies. Um, there's a recurring conspiracy theory on the internet that was fueled but not started by the Discovery Channel. Oh, we'll get to the Discovery Channel, but yeah. That Megalodon, the giant extinct shark, is not actually extinct. It's just hiding. Uh, and scientists in the government know that and are lying to you. And we had someone on Twitter once, who I later learned was uh, was not well, and I, I almost feel bad for how the interactions went, but they believed not only that they saw these megalodons, but they saw U.S. government soldiers rounding them up and killing them and threatened her life if she ever talked about it. And, I mean, obviously that didn't happen, but there are some interesting people on social media. Yeah, it's but I guess I, I think about the first time I heard that like the Navy trained dolphins. I was like, well, that seems wrong. Yeah, there's some weird stuff that's really true. And now there was just that story about the the Russian trained Navy dolphins that are blockading one of the ports in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Um, I got several media requests about that, and I am not I am an experienced uh, media interview subject, as you just said. I am not comfortable talking about aspects of an ongoing war. There are people who know more about that than me who are more appropriate interview subjects. But when that story about the Russian-trained dolphins that are involved in the the war in Ukraine came out, I had four or five media requests, and I just said, nope. Wow. That's so... Well, I think one of the things that I've learned during my time doing this show and in my kind of broader marine experience overall is that... um, you know, once you make those connections with journalists, they go to you. You know, you're their go-to kind of person, no matter if... The ocean person. Yeah. <laughs> no matter if the subject is relevant or not. I just got a request, which I've never really gotten before, which is interesting, related to some oyster work that I did in graduate school. And I'm looking at it like, I don't know if I can <laughs> accurately do that. And I think that's a great lesson for all, you know, listening marine science experts, you are an expert, but know when you're not an expert and when it Absolutely. shouldn't be you answering a question. <laughs> and if you want to be even more useful to your journalist friends, uh, not only not me, but know a specific person who does know that stuff. Yeah, especially people from, you know, local communities, underrepresented groups who can, yes, you know, be amplified in the mainstream when they usually aren't. Yes, I try to pay it forward whenever I can. I probably turn down five or 10 media requests for every one I give. And I try to suggest people who I know would be really good at it and don't get the opportunities. But every once in a while, there's a question that's just so weird that I don't even know if anyone knows how to answer it. (laughs) But certainly, I don't know how to answer it. That'll be some person's, you know, PhD research later on, hopefully. Maybe. Yeah. So now let's turn to the book. So uh, just recently published. So Why Sharks Matter, a deep dive with the world's most misunderstood predator. Um, So first, super serious question. Did you have trouble picking that title since it is all your social media handles? (laughs) So here's something. Everyone always jokes about this, but I actually had the book title before I had my social media handles. So I have been writing this book for a really long time. Uh, And I've had that social media handle on Twitter since 2009. I've had the name on on Southern Fried Science since early 2008. So I've been working on this book for a long time. Uh, but yeah, I I think it's, it's a different way of focusing on ocean conservation. The book is why sharks matter, not just sharks are neat and I like them, but why is your life different if sharks are gone? Why is the world a measurably worse place for humans if sharks are gone? And that's a way of reaching audiences that you might not otherwise reach. If I give I give talks to all sorts of groups, when I talk to Greenpeace or the Sierra Club, I say sharks are endangered and that's bad. And they say, well, obviously it's bad. In, endangered species are inherently bad. And when I give the same talk to a fishing club or just a member of a, a community organization, they don't have that reaction. So just part of this 
framing is to reach a broader audience that might not otherwise think of sharks as important and good and humans are better off with healthy shark populations than we are without them. Yeah, that's completely true. And that gets to one of the things I was thinking about as I was reading the book, because I've also read some of your scientific papers and then reading these as well. And so what ha- is that hard for you to switch between the kinds of writing? And because it's so crucial to be able to communicate in those different ways. How have you, you know, found yourself getting better at that over the years or? Yeah. So how you get better at writing is you read a lot and you practice writing a lot. I do a lot of freelance scientific journalism. I have a monthly column in Scuba Diving Magazine. I've written for the Washington Post, for for National Geographic, for Scientific American, for Gizmodo. I used to write for Slate. So how you get better at this is practice, but writing in these different formats is really important and it's a very different skill. And it's, I think of it almost like flipping a switch at this point, which I've, I've trained myself to do over many years. But I actually, as a science communication exercise, I took my PhD qualifying exams and I wanted to see if I could explain all these complex topics using grade using middle school, eighth grade language. Uh, and the answer is I could, but the, the other part of the answer is I forgot to tell one of my committee members I was doing that. Oh my gosh. And he called me and said like, hey, I, I have a weird question. Like you clearly understand these terms, but like, you know, there's a word for this, right? Like, oh yeah, it's this. Like, why didn't you write that? Like, oh, I'm just realizing now I did not fill you in on my science communication exercise qualifying exams. That's so funny. <laughs> and for those who don't know, the qualifying exam, uh, can you explain what a qualifying exam is just to make sure? Yeah, it's something you take typically after your first year as a PhD student, though it varies by program and varies between countries. And it's just a, a really, really detailed, intense examination, usually two, three, four days, where all your all of your dissertation committee members, a team that you've assembled, your advisor, as well as some others with, with complementary expertise, they just sort of grill you and ask anything they can think of related to the related to your research or things that they feel someone with a PhD should know. And the goal is not just to determine, yes, you're you're already very smart and obviously should be a scientist, because that's 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 part of it, I guess. But it's also to identify where your gaps are and to say, okay, you did really well at this, but maybe you should take another statistics class. Uh, you did really well at this, maybe you should take another physiology class. Uh, so they're they're really intense examinations, and sometimes people turn them into uh, scientific papers themselves. Uh, you can turn a qualifying exam, especially for more environmental science type stuff. Uh, it's sometimes it's just for two days, you have two days, write an essay that's 10 pages about this topic. And maybe you're the first person to ever think about it in that way. And maybe it would be a useful contribution to the literature in of itself. Uh, mine were not that mine was more like a short essay exam. And there were 50 or 75 questions and I had two days to do it. Oh my gosh. But they're, they're not the same questions that other people get. My committee put them together. But I wrote it all as if I were speaking to someone who ha- who stopped their education in eighth grade. And you can explain all these complex uh, feeding ecology and movement ecology and law and policy type questions using that language. But you end up uh, confusing your committee members if you don't tell them you're doing that. Confusing your committee members, but making a much better book for what you're trying to do, you know? And like I said, it really helped me that I count myself as among, cause I was, I'm a social scientist by training, like which is why I worked with the wonderful Amy Freitag. And so as one of the worst fisheries graduate students in the history of fisheries graduate students, because I couldn't identify any fish because it wasn't part of my job. <laughs> so it was great getting to go back to the basics of shark basics, uh, as a great foundation for the rest of the book. It's like, oh yeah, I vaguely remember this term that someone tried to teach me six, seven years ago. (laughs) So I hope if you could teach me that you've definitely uh, will teach many, many more people uh, with this book. And, you know, you've been working on it for a long time. And then of course uh, you wrote and are releasing it during the COVID-19 pandemic. And it's mentioned, you know, intermittently throughout the book, was that a conscious choice? And, uh, you know, why did you decide that was such an important thing to kind of uh, put into the the narrative? Yeah. So I just sort of wrote about my life uh, during it. So it's not, this book is not a textbook, though parts of it could be used in a sort of textbooky format. 
of it's the story of shark science and the story of shark conservation and my story weaved throughout it. So I felt it important to mention how the pandemic affected my field research plans, how it affected scientific conferences, uh, how it meant that I was trapped at home and that was a good time to finally finish writing this book I've been working on for a decade. So it's just being frank with people, just being straightforward. It's important to me. This is, I do a lot of, in addition to everything else you mentioned, I do a lot of guest lectures, um, especially lately when I know many of my scientific colleagues are just overwhelmed and overextended. And I and looking for content. <laughs> and looking for content, exactly. So I say, you know, I can't do much about the state of the world, but if I can make it so you have to write one less lecture, um, I'm happy to give a, I'm happy to speak to your students for a day about what I do. And people always ask me questions at the end and some of them are career type questions. And something that I found particularly striking, especially this year, uh, I've been doing that for 10 years, but I've been doing it more the last year or two, is how many students and teachers afterwards come up to me or email me and say, thank you for being so honest and so frank with the students. And I'm wondering, that's what stood out to you is that I'm not lying to your students. Is that something that normally happens when you have guest lectures? And apparently the answer is yes, that people come on and they they ask career advice. It's Is it lying? Really? It's very, very rose-colored glasses. Ah, um, okay. Perhaps misstating how easy it is to get a job in this field or what you need or what jobs pay. Um, or, or how often you'll have to move. So I'm just very honest that I, I, you know, I love my life. I love my career, but it's not for everyone. And I think it's important that we be honest, especially with students who are considering this path. And if they, you know, if they hear what it's really like a day in our lives and say, yeah, that sounds great. Great. I can't wait to meet you at a conference. Uh, if you're listening to this podcast and going to your first conference and I'm there, your first beer is on me. But, uh, you know, if someone should not devote years of their life in graduate school and then find struggle to find a job for years, only to first learn that finding a job is, in fact, a struggle. They should know that before they, they do this. And I, I feel like just telling them that is the absolute least I can do, but it's been resulting in weirdly effusive praise. Yeah, and and I totally get that as well. I think that's one thing that social media has helped with as well. And the you know you can have these conversations with people in a lab that you might be interested in going into, or like kind of understanding what it's like and what the culture is like a little bit more to you know make a conscious decision about this choice. For me, for example, and this is one thing that I. Uh, I was inspired by when I was reading the beginning is, you know, you're talking about how there's not one kind of marine scientist. Um, I am someone who gets incredibly seasick and <laughs> I learned how to dive um, for graduate school because I thought that was what I was going to need to do. And I didn't want to do it during my graduate degree because that was just not what that's not what our lives are like. My life was like, exactly. And that you can still be a marine scientist. And I, I think that's so important to let, to meet, you know, students or anybody where they are. If you love, I have a, a my brother-in-law is a student in finance and he loves like kind of environmental, social governance, ESG, finance, ocean. Yeah, do that. Like find what you're good at and you can connect it to your passion for the ocean, the environment. Um, but there's no one path. And I think you do a really good job at uh, letting people know that. Yeah. And, I, and something that I talk a lot about with my students is you know the the world of ocean conservation doesn't just need people trained in science. They need people who are really good at talking to people. They need fundraisers. They need web designers. They need event managers. And you can absolutely be an events manager who helps save the ocean. Uh, but even within the even within the field of science, as you mentioned, yeah, this there's this weird misconception that you need to get scuba certified in order to be a marine biologist. You need to love being out on a boat to be a marine biologist. And some people, for medical reasons, cannot go scuba diving or cannot be on a boat. And you're telling you're discriminating against people by telling them this. And it's also not true. I know lots of marine biologists who have never been on a boat in their lives. They get data from someone else and they analyze it, or they get data from satellites. Uh, or from these observer buoy type things. And they're just as much of an ocean scientist as I am. They're just a little less sunburned. <laughs> a little less sunburned, a little less risk of having a clump of hair taken off by a shark, your worst shark oh, injury to date. Oh, man. Oh, yeah. So a little bit more about the book in particular. Did you have a favorite you know, chapter or section 
that uh, when you were writing it, was any part particularly challenging to write? Yeah, a part that was particularly challenging to write, uh, which also sort of became one of my favorite parts, maybe because of that, is my editor was super serious about this. They were so supportive of this whole project. And you've, you've remarked that the tone of the book is a little different from other books you wrote, you've read um, in this space. My editors gave me so much freedom and flexibility with this, and I'm so grateful. But one thing they were super serious about is you can't just say what everyone's doing wrong. You need to say, uh, <laughs> and that's like what I'm known for on Twitter. I'm the cranky old man of ocean conservation. Uh, but they said, you need to also talk about what people can do to help. And I said, well, sometimes the answer is, well, in seven months, Noah is having a public hearing and it would be great if you would show up and speak for 60 seconds. Like, but what can I do right now? Well, in seven months, there's a hearing. And that's not anything you could put in a book that's published now when the hearing might have been three years ago when you were writing that part. <laughs> yes. So it was a real challenge to sort of distill uh, advice of what people can do to help without feeling like I was saying something that was wrong or sort of feel good fluff nonsense, but also make it useful to someone. And I that's probably the part I spend the most time on, actually, uh, even though it's one of the shorter chapters, because that's the part I knew the least about. So it was a chance for me to learn and a chance for me to talk to people that know more about engaging the public directly and things like that. Uh, it was a chance for me to critically evaluate lots of the advice that is out there. If you Google, this is an exercise I have my students at Georgetown do, um, that I sent you all these expert sources that tell you what's going on with ocean plastic pollution. Why don't you Google ocean plastic pollution as if you're a regular member of the public and see what information comes up and see if it's different from what the UN has to say about it. And they're shocked at how much nonsense shows up on the top page of Google results. It's hard to find good information. And that's, you know, it's a skill nowadays, which is horrible, but it's a skill. Because there are so many people that are trying to help but don't have a clue what they're talking about. And they just end up talking out their backside and it, it pollutes the airwaves with nonsense. It's so hard to find real, true, useful information, not be necessarily because people are trying to manipulate you and lie, though certainly some are, but because there are so many people who are trying to help and want to help but don't know what they're doing, and they end up just guessing. And these are complex technical problems with complex technical solutions, and we absolutely need people's help to solve them, but you we that does not mean we need you to guess what you should do or what you should tell others to do. Yeah, exactly. And you do so, you know, you're the expert that wrote this book, but then you featured other shark experts in it, you know, um, was that a really important part for you to do to like highlight these other people working, you know, at the NOAA level, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration to the state level to uh, academic? Yes. Uh, I, I wanted to make sure that while the book, a lot of it is my story, uh, I wanted to use a, a thing. This has always been a thing that's been part of my outreach strategy uh, is to amplify the voices of others, especially those who have really interesting and unique things to say or underrepresented perspectives, or maybe they're just a brilliant scientist who everyone in the field knows who they are, but they don't have time to do as much social media as I do. So in the book, you're introduced to 10 scientists and one conservationist as well as a variety of organizations, because I want you to know that like it's not just me out there saving the sharks. It's a large community. And we all we don't always agree and we don't always get along. And I I tried to make sure that I share the this world warts and all uh, to give people a realistic perspective of what it's like, but also how they can find more information. The, the experts that I chose are mostly people who have their own social media that you want to learn more about what's going on with this follow this organization and you'll get weekly updates. If you want to know what, what else is going on here, follow this person and you'll hear about the excitement of their next research expedition. Uh, so yeah, introducing, introducing readers to people who are studying sharks and working to save sharks all over the world was a goal of the book. Yeah. And that's always something that doing this podcast has helped me become less of a, of a grumpy, pessimistic person <laughs> because I see in all the different fields that I cover all over the world, there's people who really care and there's people who are doing things in a, in a conscious way, not just doing them to do them. You know, that there are experts around the world who are focused on offshore wind and focused on deep sea mining and focused on, you know, all these crucial issues that are useful for our ocean to be healthy and for us to address the climate crisis, all these sorts of things. Um, so 
I think that, yeah, broadening that scope, I hope gives people more hope uh, when they read the book too, that it's, oh gosh, it's not just David. There's all these people doing fantastic things for sharks. Mm-hmm. That's so great. Um, so coming back to the ocean decade a little bit, one of the things I was struck by in your book and something I don't think I really realized was the recreational fishing of sharks. Um, and it got me thinking about how stakeholders who enjoy the ocean recreationally, you know, we were talking earlier that you don't have to be a certain kind of thing to be a marine scientist and you don't even have to be in a, you know, marine field. If you just go to the ocean and enjoy it, if you're a fisher, if you're a boater, if you're a water skier, um, and that kind of community, the people who enjoy the ocean recreationally have not really been part I think of the ocean decade thus far that I've seen has been people like you and me who do this as parts of our jobs. Um, but I think it's so crucial to involve these stakeholders because as we, as people will see in your book, they, they can have huge impacts <laughs> on the ocean and you talk about it in terms of shark fisheries. So I just love your kind of perspective uh, on how you think this big international ocean decade effort can better include recreational ocean lovers into this 10 year initiative. Yeah. So yeah, people who are not professional ocean people, not professional fishers, not professional scientists, not whatever, um, the ocean's important to everyone. And some people work as an investment banker or work as an auto mechanic or whatever, but they love the ocean. They go surfing, they go fishing, they go scuba diving. They just love driving their boat around on the weekends. And their perspective matters too. And in some cases, their perspective is really interesting and can cause us to think about these things in a different way. How to best do that? It's tricky because when you're trying to reach a group of scientists, they usually have some sort of professional society or affiliation that you can reach out to that has the mailing lists. And there's not a professional society of people in South Florida who like to ride around in their friend's boat on the weekend. So it's harder, but social media can be part of the answer there. and just word of mouth for a lot of this. Something that's really important in my my policy consulting space and stakeholder knowledge and attitudes assessment work is the importance of what's called a boundary organization. Uh, that's someone who sort of has a, if, trying to talk to the recreational fishers, someone who's respected by the recreational fishing community, but has some sort of scientific training or relationships. So I can talk science to them as a scientist And then they can translate that and the recreational fishing community knows who this person is and will listen to them. But if I just approach them directly, they might just think that I'm an ivory tower elitist snob, which may or may not be true, but it certainly is not. It's one of your many, maybe it's one of maybe many your titles, you know, like all your titles. It's one of them, but not the main one. (laughs) I I certainly have, uh, have ivory tower elitist snob in me somewhere, but there are, yeah, sometimes that's something really important that a decade on social media has taught me is that you can be totally right and the other person can be totally wrong and you can lose just because of who you are and who they are. Uh, sometimes the messenger matters as message the message. So it, if your goal is actually fixing the problem rather than you getting credit for fixing the problem, sometimes it's important to use intermediaries and boundary organizations and partners. Yeah, I love that you know, kind of thought and concept. It's something that I've been thinking more about, you know, we're in the second year of a, of a 10 year initiative and we have kind of a lot of the business as usual players at the table. We're bringing in more, I think with the ocean decade that we're hopefully going to do an episode later this year with Prada has been super involved in like funding. So that's really cool. Um, but then like, how do we really open the door and connect to people, you know, that aren't, you know, (laughs) in a society, related to the ocean. Yeah, it's hard. Uh, you have identified a real problem is all I can tell you here. Uh, I, I wish I had an easy answer. Yeah. And sometimes that's the start, you know, and that's the point. That's the beauty I love about this decade is we can ask those kind of big questions and work towards a solution, you know, and I think recognizing that they have to be part of the solution, you know, like you had said, uh, when you were in graduate school, thinking about this, people were like, oh, don't worry about recreational. Like, they don't matter. And obviously, they did a lot <laughs> for the shark fisheries. Yeah, describe. there's a section in the book where you talk about how that's the one gasp you've gotten during a, <laughs> during a presentation, was presenting that data. Yeah, and that wasn't even my original data. This was, on, this was from the NOAA Fisheries of the United States report, which is, a, is it every two years, every year? I can't remember. Time doesn't mean anything anymore. But This is a major public report that's just all the statistical data about 
fishing in the U.S. and the fishing industry and the uh, what's caught and where. And I just compared two tables that were 170 pages apart in there, but they're both publicly accessible data. And I put them side by side on a PowerPoint slide. And I said, well, if you look at the NOAA Fisheries of the United States report, it clearly shows that last year in the United States, more large sharks were killed by recreational anglers than by the commercial fishing community. And like that data was in the report, but no one else had compared those two tables side by side. And an audience full of, of serious academics went, <gasps> and it was very striking. And I actually re revised the, the content of the talk on the fly based on that reaction. But that wasn't even my results section. That was my yeah. introduction section. That was your And everyone was like, that can't be right. I'm like, no, look, these are the tables. Like, look at that. Uh, 4,500 tons is larger than 3,000 tons. Yeah. Like math. <laughs> <laughs> That's when you do the mic drop and then just go and yes. get a beer at that point. You know, you're like, I've yeah. taught you something new. Take, take it and leave. <laughs> yeah, we're going to call this a win three minutes into the talk. There you go. Well, you know, there's the like three-minute theses and all sorts of other things. So you were just doing a yeah, totally different kind of three-minute thesis. So I want to jump to kind of forward and backwards. Um, so you mentioned, and I think everyone knows, the 1975 film Jaws, which I didn't see until I was an older, uh, in, in like my late teens. And so I never really understood it as like, I never saw it when I was at the age where it could be like scary, I think. Yeah. Everyone has that movie that they, the one movie that they saw when they were like too young to see a movie like that. Oh, and for 100%. Me, for me, that was Jaws. Oh, for you, it was Jaws. And so that didn't dissuade you from your shark love? It didn't. And it, the, my shark love predated that, which is probably why my parents let me watch this, this at times incredibly violent and scary movie uh, when I was too young to deal with it. They were like, oh, well, he likes sharks. This has a shark on the cover. We'll just try that out. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> so I would have loved for someone like you to be around before that to kind of study what the, you know, public perception on sharks were before then and then after. But the public perception of sharks before Jaws was people just didn't really think of them. They were like vaguely aware that it was a thing that existed. Really? It was that much of an inflection point for global society? An unbelievable change the world moment. And the only other one that's even remotely on that level is back to dinosaurs. If I ask you to picture a Tyrannosaurus Rex, what you think about is the one from Jurassic Park, even though we know that they don't look like that. But I want them to look like that, David. <laughs> yeah, that's how they look in my head, too, when I picture it, even though I know it's wrong, because just movies can crystallize things for us. Yeah, have yeah. so that's incredible to think about. You know, the fact that these creatures have been around forever. We always kind of knew they were around. Um, and then this one movie can change everything. And then uh, probably your favorite uh, TV show or TV event of the whole year, Shark Week, um, has perpetuated oh, that throughout the years. Um, and for those who don't know, Shark Week is an annual week-long TV programming block at the Discovery Channel. Um, although I'm not sure, I think it just exists as like an online thing now, because does cable even exist anymore? We don't know. It it does apparently uh, still exist. Discovery Plus has some of the Shark Week content, but there is still a real TV channel that this stuff airs. <laughs> I know. So this this Shark Week features, and I'm putting quotations around this sh quote: shark based programming. <laughs> and a la that's perhaps insufficiently sarcastic air quotes <laughs> that you're using. But yes. I think that's why I loved this book so much is because I could read your dry humor and sarcasm throughout it, and it just made my cold dead heart happy <laughs> so oh, glad to hear that <laughs> so yeah for people who haven't don't really know what we're joking about here last year for example one of the programs was called jackass shark week and featured members of the jackass team uh doing shark stunts and pranks which quote <laughs> it's just too i know test their bravery stupidity and thresholds of pain and they also put shark not, no, 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 I'm, I'm going to ruin the punchline. Star Trek's William Shatner underwater in the very creatively named Shark Trek. I like practiced that before this and I still screwed it up because it's so similar. But so, yeah, this isn't the most educational of programs. And you talk about the, the hoodwinking that happens, you know, to actual shark scientists and conservationists. Um, and so it got me thinking about, you know, the role of media in in the ocean world. And so another one of these kind of bigger, broader ocean decade questions. So how would you like to see portrayals of sharks during shark week and other ocean work in the media change by 2030? 
Yeah, I mean, a good first step for Shark Week would be just stop lying. <laughs> um, a second. There's the quote right there. Yeah. I mean, and by lying, I want to be very clear. I'm not, I don't just mean saying things that are factually incorrect. I mean, saying things that they know are factually incorrect. It's not the rosy colored glasses, you know, that people do with marine science. This is like straight out lying. It's straight up lying. Uh, They've had fictional programming that is not called fictional. They have CGI videos of sharks, photoshopped imagery and actors playing scientists, government officials and family members of victims of shark bites that didn't happen. And that's perhaps not great. They have largely stopped that, but there's still plenty of nonsense. Uh, I can't remember if it was last summer or the summer before. Uh, Shark or The Discovery Channel has a long-running series called Naked and Afraid, uh, which is like survival reality TV. Did they do a Naked and Afraid shark? Not only did they do one of those, Taylor, they did two Naked and Afraid of sharks. Uh, and in, to give you an example of how ridiculous this is, there was one segment where they had to spearfish for food and they were given mask, fins, and snorkel, but not bathing suits to accomplish this. So they were naked and spearfishing? No, they're literally na- they're naked for like weeks during this. It all- but in spearfishing? That's dangerous. <laughs> it's not great. Uh, spearfishing, if you don't know what you're doing, is incredibly dangerous to begin with. And you know, not having any sort of protection around, let's say, sensitive areas of uh, could lead to ba- bad news. Yes. But yes, these and that's two hours. Uh, those shows are Naked and Afraid of Sharks and Naked and Afraid of Sharks 2 are both two hours. So I hope you people appreciate what I put myself through for your benefit. Oh, so yeah. Main thing by 2030 is to stop lying. That'd be a good, that'd be a good start. So we actually just did, Dr. Lisa Whitenack of Allegheny College was lead on this, and I'm the senior author on it. We just did an analysis of everything that was ever said on Shark Week. We had assembled a team of undergraduates and made them watch it and had them write down anytime they said anything about science, anytime they said anything about conservation, every shark that appeared, every place it was filmed, every person who was featured as an expert. Here's a fun statistic for this. What a fun thing for them to put on their resume. Oh, they'll be co-authors of, on a paper uh, as undergraduates. Oh, even better. But one the, the one of the more striking statistics from this, and one of the things that Shark Week does not get enough crap for, they get plenty of crap for their fictional shark programming, uh, but no, most of the shows take place in the Bahamas, South Africa, or Mexico, and they, they've shown like five black scientists ever. Oh my God. <laughs> One of the more striking results was among people who have appeared in more than one episode, featured experts who have appeared in more than one episode, there are more guys named Mike who are not scientists than there are women. So they're using fake people and not even having a diverse array of fake people? You would get the impression watching Shark Week that to be a shark scientist, you have to be uh, a a white guy. with a very particular uh, way of speaking that they, I guess people call TV voice and named Mike doesn't hurt. And in reality, 60% of my field is women. And you'd never know, you know, if 60% of the field is women and 85% of the people featured on the show are guys, then that's not an accident on their casting part. Yeah. It's something that, you know, if, if people are in marine science grad school or have gone or uh, it's full of women. Most of my cohort was women. And uh, it's something that as you get further up in, I think, any field, but I think especially in the marine science field, as you get more senior, that tends to change. Um, and things like this can be, detri- you know, like the visual image of only white men making it further. Representation matters. How many times have we heard that in the last few years? Watching this this show, it's not only that the featured experts only appeal to a particular bro demographic, it's that the sort of stuff that they do, like that that jackass show that you wanted, that's not my, that's not what I want to watch on TV. Uh, but there are, as a particular set of people who think, yes, I love jackass and I would love to see them torturing animals for my entertainment. And Discovery has decided to cater entirely to those people. I've never heard the phrase bro demographic before, and I don't know if I ever want to hear it again, but it's so it's so representative of what, you know, our media is and the media's view on sharks and ocean work overall. And so, yeah, so I think s- stop lying by 2030. That's a big thing. And then increasing representation. That's a good goal. Basic fact checking, in- increase representation. 
it's unreal. Like it, it's not even the the stuff that's like out of date that gets me. But they'll show a black tip shark and they'll say like black tip sharks can get twelve feet long. No, they can't. They'll show a hammerhead and they'll say this is there are fifteen species of hammerhead. No, there are not. Um, just basic stuff that they just make no effort to try. And they claim like we give the discovery is the biggest stage in marine biology. More people temporarily start paying attention to anything related to uh, or during more people start paying attention to this topic during Shark Week than anything, any other time during the year for any other ocean science or conservation topic. Uh, and they, it's just such a missed opportunity. There are, they imagine if 1% of that audience was motivated to actually write in a public comment on a NOAA Federal Register document. We could change the world. And instead, they're, how can I help that they feature? They say, we're helping the ocean by telling our huge audience how to help. They had a graphic a few years ago that I saved because it was the dumbest thing I've ever seen in my life. And like, we are reaching an audience of millions. We want to do our part to save the ocean. One of the five ways they said to help was report shark attacks. If you are bitten by a shark, tell someone. One of the things was stop eating shark fin soup. How many American Discovery Channel viewers do you think are eating this? Uh, and what, I don't even remember what the others are, but it's just nonsense. And just if you gave me 0.1% of that audience willing to help with something, we could make the ocean a better place. And they just spend it with jackass torturing animals. With jackass torturing animals and William Shatner underwater, which I feel like he's too old to be underwater. I'd, I'd be very scared of like... He just went to space this year. I worry for him. Oh, I forgot about that too. Yeah. Oh my gosh. They just want him everywhere. Yeah. Busy guy. He's in demand. Just like you are. Um, <laughs> you and William Shatner are effectively the same. Yeah, basically the same thing. So I actually write for StarTrek.com. Uh, it was one of my many one of my many hats. I do science of science fiction stuff. I don't want to be the person who has to do your taxes <laughs> just because you have so many jobs. So, what do you hope that people take away from your book? You know, what do you want them to walk away having learned? Yeah, so there's I guess five main take homes. One, sharks are awesome and amazing, and you should rekindle that love you had for them when you were four. Uh, one, they are not a threat to you or your family. Uh, they are really, really important. They are, we are in danger of losing many species forever, and that would be very, very bad for people. We can turn the tide and help save them, but a lot of the, a lot of the ways that you have been told of how to do that are wrong and not helpful. So listen to experts. Don't sign petitions. <laughs> Don't sign the goofy amateur-made change.org petitions that are just nonsense. Those are email harvesting operations. Which in this day and age, yeah, protect your, protect your, <laughs> all your stuff, all of your passwords, all your emails. Um, yeah, and it's it's really great because uh, I tend to, you know, as someone in the ocean space, I tend to avoid reading like popular books about the ocean because I just expect, like you were saying earlier, I expect things to be wrong or like you, it's like, oh well, that's not quite right or oh, that's a little, off, you know, because you like see it in a more holistic way. But after you know, finishing this, I did not feel that way at all. And so congratulations on creating a book that's not only entertaining and uh, really useful, but also something that I think can stand the test of time and tells your story and other stories. So thank you. Yeah, it's a, it's a long time coming. And I'm glad that you finally got time to finish it and that we all get to benefit from it. Last off, I have uh, a question, my two last questions. So I asked this to all of my guests. Um, to you, you know, from your perspective, your involvement in the ocean decade thus far, what you've helped with, what would constitute a successful ocean decade to you? It can be from a shark perspective. It can be from a broader conservation perspective, but by the time we reach 2030, what you'd like to look back and say, okay, this happened because of this international initiative. So there's a lot of exciting stuff happening in ocean science and policy world these days. Uh, it's an interesting time to be working in this space. But I, what I would love to see the role of the ocean decade is increasing international collaborations, people, not just people who already know each other, but bringing people together who otherwise didn't, uh, someone's local expertise and perspective of uh, combined with someone else's experience, uh, or just people who would work really well together if they ever got the chance to meet 
Um, I think this is the potential that the Ocean Decade has to do some really, really powerful stuff is just bringing people together uh, who are experts in different things. Yeah, that's a great way to to look at it. I think for the U.S. In, for a long time there, we weren't really participating in any sort of international anything. And the fact that, you know, now more than ever through social media, through podcasts, through all these sorts of things, we can talk to people on the other side of the world or just a few miles away like David and I are right now um, in an instant. And how can we harness that over the next 10 years um, to really make a difference and make a change? Um, so thank you, David, so much for being on today. Where can people go to learn more about your wor- work and more importantly, buy the book? Yes, please buy the book. Uh, I've, I've worked on this for so long, you guys. He has a dog uh, to support people. We need those books. The book is called Why Sharks Matter, A Deep Dive with the World's Most Misunderstood Predator. It is available from Johns Hopkins University Press, direct from their website. It is on Amazon. It is at science museums and zoos and aquariums all over the United States, Canada, and the United Kingdom, uh, and indie bookstores. Uh, I am also going on a 26-city, four-country book tour. So I am a, I will be in a place near you in person, uh, and I will be in a place near you sometime this summer, uh, and I'm happy to sign your books and answer your questions in person. But if you want to learn more about me and uh, how you can help these great organizations that I talk about in the book and how you can help sharks, I am on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Why Sharks Matter. Wow, that's uh, I didn't know about the tour. That's so fantastic. And that's going to be a lot after a few years of COVID. Well, that's so exciting. I'm so glad that uh, you know you came on, that we got to talk about this and talk a little bit. Hopefully, this was a little less like your typical interviews, a little broader, a little bit different. And I'm glad that we were able to talk a lot about sharks, but then get your insight about all sorts of other things too. So thanks for being on this month, David. Thank you for having me. And thank you everyone for listening. And we'll catch you back here real soon for the next episode of the Ocean Decade Show. Ocean Decade.